Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Right. Good evening, one and all. So as you know, tomorrow is Swamiji's birthday. It's January 25th, and we follow the Vedic moon calendar. So it might be confusing to some people. Last year was on a different date. Today is on a different date. This year, next year, it'll be on a different date. So sometimes people go, wait, what's going on here? You keep pulling out the rug from under me. I thought the birthday was on the 12th of January. Yes, it is, according to the Gregorian calendar. So Swami Vivekananda, the great messenger of Vedanta, the ambassador of yoga to the West, the herald of light and the forebearer of truth, was born indeed on January 12th. 1863. Um, and on the 12th of January every year, India celebrates National Youth Day. So hopefully today we can see why that is the case. Why is it that Swamiji's birthday is celebrated as National Youth Day? And in fact, a while ago, in my hubris, I attempted to do a biographical lecture on the Swami, as if a few hours was enough to sketch the biographical details of so great a soul you know, as Shiva himself embodied in the form of Vivekananda, as if one lecture was going to, you know, uh, move a single pebble on that mountain. But we tried. And so today, what we're going to do is something different. We're not going to do a biographical lecture like we did last year. For those of you interested in the details of Swamiji's life, you know, you might go look at that lecture. It's on the YouTube. You can see. Um, and that just gives kind of an overview of the incredible life of this epic and great hero, Swami Vivekananda. Um, today we're going to do something a little different. Today we're going to kind of zero in at specific parts of Swamiji's message. And today we'll look at his central message, which is work as worship. You know, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit and kind of look at the Vedantic um, humanism of Swami Vivekananda. So as you know, in the Western philosophical ethical systems, you can't derive a sh an ought from an is. Just because something is the case doesn't mean it ought to be that way right? That's a pretty simple ethical principle. Just because something is doesn't mean that that alone is a moral justification for it. So in Western philosophy, we have this rule. You cannot derive an ought from an is. That's called is-ought fallacy. There, Swamiji, Dhruva is showing here. Swami Vivekananda. That one. <laughs> that one. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. So many Swamiji. Here he is, Swami Vivekananda. Oh, you can't see me shining here resplendently. Yes, the ochre-robed sannyasin. And you know, today we'll read some of his poetry, a song of the sannyasin and all of that. So, um, one thing to note is that in Western philosophy, typically you cannot derive an uh, ought from an is. So one example of this might be, um, let's say there's a certain way we're treating a certain group of people. That's the status quo. Just because the status quo doesn't make it right. Okay, so that's is-ought fallacy. However, Vivekananda has done something quite innovative and quite profound. From the feet of his master, Ramakrishna Paramahansa, he received a teaching, a teaching of all teachings. And that teaching um, revealed to him the what some Swami has called the ontological um, ethical philosophy. That is to derive an ought from a true is, a metaphysical is. 
A lot of technical phrases here, but another way of saying this is by seeing into the nature of reality on an absolute level, Swamiji was able to derive an ethical philosophy grounded not in any vain reason, not in any logical system, not in any kind of deductive philosophy, but grounded in the absolute ground of all reality, which is the firmest foundations upon which to build an ethical system. So that's the part of Vivekananda's legacy that I'd like to maybe humbly zero in a little by the grace of the Divine Mother, you know? Yeah, I know. You see the black eye? <laughs> yes. I fought a 10-year-old. Don't worry, you should have seen the other guy. No, I'm kidding. We were, we were jumping on the trampoline and we were playing this game where I was trying not to be touched. You know, he was touching all the other. So I jumped under the arm. And then the knee came and this boy gave me a nice kick in the knee. Glasses got shattered and you know, the black eye. <laughs> you are a unique boy after all. <laughs> yes. And yesterday a sweet nun said to me so diplomatically, wow, you're a unique one. Because I had my glasses all taped up with duct tape. So I could read the screen for the Brahmachari singing yesterday. <laughs> But um, yes, so that's what we're going to So today's lecture is really going to be, on one level, a discussion of Swamiji's ethics, which is an ethics founded upon a deep personal experience of an ontological truth. That is a fundamental truth of existence, an absolute truth that Swamiji perceived directly, forming the foundation and basis for an ethical philosophy about how we ought to behave in this world, how we ought to treat one another, how we ought to do our duties and our work in this world, the duties that have been allotted to us. Now, um, another way to look at this lecture is it's going to be hopefully, God willing, a practical kind of treatment of how to work you know, how to be in the world doing our duty as householders, but how to make that work itself not a thing apart from our spiritual practice, but our spiritual practice in and of itself. You know, so often we can feel like we don't have enough time to meditate. And many of us have jobs, we're householders, we live in the world, we have kids, uh, we have people who depend on us, we have to take care of mom, dad, parents, guardians, take care of older people, our grandma, grandfather, we have to take care of society and make sure we have enough money to feed the homeless and to feed the animals and all of that, you know, and we have jobs and, and some of us might not be too enthused about the jobs that we do. <laughs> They're the jobs that we have, but perhaps not necessarily the jobs that we want. And even in the best case that we are doing the jobs that we want, it's our dream, you know, to be a Starbucks barista. Maybe that might be the case. Even in that case, we might still feel the humdrum and dreariness of worldly existence, no? It feels so inane sometimes to go into work day after day, to clock in, to deal with mundane worldly people and the mundane worldly talk, all the while behind the counter, behind the cash register, um, behind the uh, bar, you're waiting for that opportunity to come home and finally get back to your spiritual practice. Now, I speak to most of you here, um, knowing that most of you, in fact, perhaps all of you, have very deep and authentic spiritual practices. You know, all of you have been, um, in one way or another, initiated into spiritual life, in one form or, or another. All of you are walking the spiritual path, each according to their own predisposition and their own path. There is a genuine hunger. The flame has been lit. You are all burning with enthusiasm for the divine. So for such a group as you, work might feel particularly inane. 
You know, because it's just taking you away from your meditation. It's taking you away from your contemplation and study. It's drawing you away from the worship of your ishta, your chosen ideal. All you want to do is sit in front of the altar and sing songs to Shiva, to Krishna, to Ma Kali. But instead, here you are serving coffee. What an insult to your spirituality. How undignified, you know, sometimes we might feel that way. There's a wonderful word in Sanskrit, actually. The word is viraha. It's a good word to kind of um, note. Viraha. Because viraha is, is one of those untranslatable words. You know, have you heard of those? Those words that really make sense in other languages but don't translate so nicely into English. I think the textbook example is Schadenfreude, which I think <laughs> you and I were indulging in a little too much yesterday. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, so like that German word schadenfreude doesn't really translate very nicely. You know, so schadenfreude is like taking delight in your enemy's suffering. There's a kind of opposite word in Japanese, ijiroshi, which means to enjoy your friend's success, the opposite of jealousy, so to speak. There's a word in, uh, I think, Lithuanian, litost. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but litost is one of those untranslatable words that means a deep kind of mourning and grief. It's the sound... A, this is what I was told by a psychologist to explain this to me. It's a sound that the dog makes on the battlefield, recognizing that its owner is dead. It's a pretty specific emotion, but for some reason, we can kind of feel it, you know? Yes, all these words like schadenfreude, even uh, one of my favorite German words is Weltschmerz. Do you know that one? Weltschmerz, world weariness. Weltschmerz is that feeling that you all feel um, when you realize that nothing you can experience through the five senses will ever fully satisfy you, to use a phrase from Ramdas. You're just talking about Baba Ramdas yesterday. So that phrase, you know, nothing in, in, that you can experience with your ego, your five senses will ever fully satisfy you. You know, that feeling of, oh, I have tasted the fruit entirely and I'm sick of the taste, the fruit of the world. So that feeling is Weltschmerz. In the Buddhist traditions, they call it divine dispassion. It's divine because it's exactly that dispassion that will be a singularity in your life. You know, so before that feeling arises, we spend all of our time climbing the corporate ladder, making money, asking for people's numbers at the cafe, chasing tail at the bar, crying over all the breakups, you know. Or we walk all these ways to suffering and we're living in the world, so to speak. Because as we discussed last week, Vishayananda, the Ananda, the bliss that we get from the contact of sense. Uh, organs and their objects is a kind of bliss. Remember last week's lecture? We did the Taitiriya Upanishad and Ananda Mimamsa. And in that lecture, Ananda Mimamsa means analysis of joy. In that lecture, we explored how worldly joy is still a joy. It's still a bliss. Every worldly experience is a reflection of that Maha Sukha, that supreme bliss. So what we are looking for in the orgasm or the taste of chocolate, what we are looking for in the Grammy nomination is ultimately God. But until we know how to articulate that quest, we are doomed to kind of look for God in the limited things of the world. It's not that desire was wrong. It's that the objects of our desire was less than skillful. You know, so that's mostly our life. Um, up until the point we develop this genuine Welch merits, that is this genuine world weariness, this divine dispassion, this feeling of, ah, I am so disappointed. <laughs> Mild disappointment that slowly intensifies as you continue to live in this futile way. So 
The Buddhists call it divine dispassion. Divine because that's the turning point of the mind away from the world towards the inner world. Hello! <laughs> How does ennui fit? Ennui, I like that French word, it's, ennui. Is it the same? Yeah, so boredom, right? It's like, yeah. Yeah, Weltschmerz, world weariness. Huh? Boring sadness. Boring sadness, a poignant boredom, right? Ennui, yeah, we can throw that word in there too. We're collecting all these different... Uh, yes, this is actually a linguistics class. What are you all doing here? This is Linguistics 101. What, you thought you were going to hear some spiritual... What are you talking This is linguistics, no? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, these words, ennui, weltschmerz, divine dispassion, litost, these are all words that kind of circumambulate an idea, a feeling. Yeah, that's a nice one, dross. How do you pronounce that, Roxanne? Droll? Drolling. Yeah, droll. Yeah, it means funny, but it's in, in French, but it's... Uh, I don't know. It doesn't really feel right. Droll. <laughs> yeah, it's like, huh. ha ha. <laughs> it's like a sad kind of love. I don't know. But um, yeah, all these words, they're not very easy to translate into English. And viraha is one of those words in Sanskrit that doesn't really have a one-to-one -one translation in English. But let's try. It's that feeling of separation from that which you consider most sacred. You know, it's that feeling of being parted from the ultimate, from the absolute. It's a poignant feeling that only arises in a person who has a deep understanding of the absolute. You know, so someone who has glimpsed that reality in meditation, contemplation, or prayer, to such a person comes this feeling, viraha. And that feeling will, yeah, homesickness maybe, that feeling will arise whenever one is parted from that absolute. So the gopis of Vrindavan, you know, in the Leela of Krishna, are perhaps the ultimate embodiments of Viraha. They feel a tremendous grief and longing and pain for Krishna, and they feel uh, the pang of separation, you know. Ah, how I long for the day, right, Govinda, when an instant separation from thee will be as a thousand years. Yes. burns away with its desire. <sighs> burns away, you know, that burning, that sensation of, it's, it's a torment, it's a torture, but it's the sweetest torture there is. So Tulsidas sings so beautifully, um, one tear, I'm paraphrasing Tulsidas, you know, the great Ramayana compiler, um, one tear from, uh, from the feeling of Viraha is better than all the sweetnesses of the world combined. You know, that intensity of that feeling, viraha, that, that deep yearning for the divine, is a sweeter taste than every other taste that you can taste with the senses and with the intellect. It's the highest intensity of the heart-mind. Emotion taken to its absolute climax. A fever pitch of emotion and intellect. You know, because lest the intellect be completely rarefied, lest the emotionality or the heart be completely purified, such a feeling won't arise. And the more purification the heart and mind undergo, the more poignant this feeling. In fact, any of you who have read Rumi, Rumi's masterwork, the Matanawi, opens with this sentiment, you know, hark, hark to the song of the reed flute, or hark, hark to the reed flute who sings the songs of separation, having been cut and taken away from its bed, bed of reeds, you know? That's the opening of Rumi's Mathnawi. It opens with that sentiment, hark, hark to the reed flute, who sings the songs of separation. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's that feeling of 
deep, deep viraha. So all of us have that to some degree or another. In fact, I look at the discord and I love the sentiments that we express about how excited we are to come together and learn together and share in this life. You know, how exciting it is to share in the life divine. Yes, it's like the blues. Very artful feeling, very artistic. So we all feel this, right? And now let's return to the point. This feeling of viraha is sometimes intensified because of the mundane things that we have to do, or at least the things that we have deemed to be mundane. I got to clean the dishes. I wash the dishes. That sucks. I much rather be praying. So what happens? Our dishes pile up. And then our prayer is marred because of that nagging thought, my dishes are in the sink. Or um, we don't want to handle the bills or the taxes. We don't want to go to work. And what happens? We're evicted from our apartment and we can no longer pray at our altar because we had to sell our bronze statues to, you know. (laughs) But there's a sense in which spiritual practitioners can sometimes be rather impractical. And it's not for a lack of a good reason. We're impractical because we are somewhat disappointed by the world. We are no longer interested in making it in the world. We're no longer moved by the same motives that we perhaps were moved a lifetime ago. You know, motives for power, for pleasure, for wealth. Those motives aren't alive in us anymore. So how can we be expected to continually engage in the world, to live active lives of of work and uh, duty? How can we expect that of us? We who have become so jaded and tired of the world. We who are the poignant feelers of Welsh merits. What of it, you know? What will we do? Will we retire to the caves of the Himalayas? You know, will we go deep into the desert with St. Anthony in the hesychastic traditions of second century Christendom? Where will we go? Will we go to the Lushan mountain province to paint on rocks with the Taoist masters? There's this desire that arises, a desire for spirituality, not necessarily escapism. I think it's unfair to call this spiritual bypassing or escapism right away because it might not be. It might be a genuine intuition that the world is empty and that there is a deeper reality. And I'd like to move towards that, and I'd like to take a few steps away from that other life. That should be honored in all of us. And this, I'm going to stress, is perhaps the deepest dilemma in a spiritual aspirant's life, especially in the life of a householder, a parent, a child, a friend, a brother, a sister, you know, a worker. This is the deepest dilemma. So what do we do? Today's lecture will be about, hopefully, God willing, resolving that dilemma. Because the center diadem in the crown of Swamiji's lecturing, that that heart of his lecturing, is a resolution of this paradox. The ultimate claim that Swamiji makes is that work is worship. And that all the time you spend at the cashier at Starbucks, all the time you spend tending to your child, nurturing your friend and, and doing your duties in the world, all of that is spiritual practice. It's not the appetizer. It's not dessert. It's not a side condiment. It's not a compliment to spiritual practice. It is spiritual practice. It's the main course, goddammit. And through that alone, one can acquire all there is to be acquired in the life of spirituality. So Swamiji came with the burning brand of work as worship to show each and every one that their life in the world can be as much a prayer to God as being in front of the altar, as being in the Himalayas, as sitting uh, absorbed in meditation for hours and hours and hours. So in Karma Yoga, Swamiji expresses an idea beautifully. He says the perfected man is one, a woman person, is one who is intensely active during times of contemplation. 
So when you're sitting in the Himalayas, when it's time to meditate, when it's time to be quiet, outwardly you look very, very peace. I mean, not peace. Outwardly you look very immobile. But inwardly you are active. You are reining in all the thought currents and redirecting it towards your absolute. You are fixing the mind upon the mast of the mantra. You know, you are pouring all of your thought currents and soul energy and will into the act of meditation. So outwardly you seem like a rock, you know, like a statue. Inwardly you are aflame with action, with, with motivation, with activity. And conversely, when you are active in the world, when you are prowling about the arena of life like a lion roaring your soul song, in that moment, inwardly, you are calm and unmoving. Like a, like a, like a candle flame in a windless room, you know, to reference that line from the Gita. So can you imagine that ideal? When you are still, you are intensely active inwardly. Outwardly, when you're moving, inwardly, you are still. That is the sign of spiritual maturity, according to Swamiji. So that's what today's lecture is going to be about. We'll try to see how such a thing could be possible for us, how we could turn work into worship. And the key to that is understanding Vedanta, understanding Advaita Vedanta particularly. And I would argue, actually, the Shaivism we've been studying together, you know, the Pratyabhikya school is not an illusionist model. It's not Jagat Mitya, the world is false. No, no. The Pratyabhikya model is the world is real. Maya is real. It's an emanation, an outpouring of Shiva, the absolute. You know. So we'll look at what we've learned from Pratyabhikya non-dual tantra. We'll look at what we learned from Advaita Vedanta. And using those understandings, that realization, we will empower the idea that the work itself that we do can be worship, can be prayer. All right. It's exciting because um, many, many years ago, in 1893, on the 11th of September, no, 9-11 is September, yes, 11th of September, uh, uh, Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda, gave his address at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. It was the first time a yogi had addressed the West. You know, as Dhruva and I heard yesterday, there was a beautiful line that um, Maharaj quoted, and it was Vivekananda saying, as the Buddha had a message for the East, I come to the West with my message. I have a message for the West, you know. So Swamiji came to the West, uh, born aloft upon the wings of a divine inspiration. Uh, he came to the West to deliver this message. So there are three messages, really, and we'll explore them each in its own place. The first is the innate divinity of the soul, that you already are everything you are seeking to become through spiritual practice. Uh, it is already your birthright, for it is already your very essence nature. That's the first message. The second is the universality of all religions. So he would express such lofty ideas as the Hindu, by definition, is one who is comfortable kneeling before the cross of the Christians, who is one who is comfortable praying in the mosques of the Mohammedans, one who is comfortable bowing to the fire of the Zoroastrians. Because a Hindu is one who recognizes that the range of spirituality, to kind of paraphrase Swamiji's words, from the lowest form of fetishism to the highest, most exalted form of absolutism, all of them are but vain grasps to grasp the ungraspable, to grasp the ineffable. And so all of it must be respected, all of it must be uh, cherished, and all of it must be offered. Each, given their own predispositions, will go each in their own way. That was his second message, the universality of all religions. And his third message, of course, among many, uh, central message was work as worship. You know, to do your work as prayer, which we'll explore today. 
But kind of in honor of that message, because, you know, honestly, we're all here because of uh, Swamiji's address in 1893. None of this would be the case if Swamiji did not bring yoga to the West. Every yoga studio that exists today, even like Core Power, you know, where they blast uh, a Lil John or Lil Peep while you um, do your down dogs, even those studios you know, owe their very existence to Swami Vivekananda. And in fact, most yoga studios today are Hatha yoga studios. Yes, they practice asana, you know. Um, Those studios would be horrified, perhaps. Yeah, goat yoga. Those studios would be... (laughs) Dhruva showed me a video the other day at breakfast of a dog actually doing yoga. Maybe later we'll screen share and watch it. He's actually doing asana. He's not just like doing down dog. That dog is with with the owner going through all sorts of... (laughs) But anyway... Um, all the yoga studios that exist today, all these Hatha yoga studios, owe kind of their existence to this 1893, September 11th message that Swami Vivekananda presented before a world audience, before the gathered power of Chicago, the might of a new dawning civilization, you know, America. So, but the the funny thing is, all these studios might be appalled to find that Swamiji did not teach asana. He was not interested in teaching Hatha Yoga at all. There was no Hatha Yoga in his message. In fact, he came to teach four yogas, four yogas that we will discuss today. The yoga of contemplation and study, self-inquiry, really. The yoga of devotion, love, and prayer. The yoga of concentration, psychic control, and meditation. And finally, the one that we're really going to be talking about today, the yoga of selfless service done as worship. So in this selfless service being done as worship, the other three are present. They are imminent in this one kind of outpouring of work as worship, you know. So we're kind of going to kind of, by, by divine grace today, try to harmonize all four because that was the idea. The idea was that by work or by worship, by philosophy or by psychic control, by anyone or any combination of these, be free. You know, that was Swamiji's message. So in that address, he spoke to the Parliament of World Religions. But let's rewind the clock back to 1884. So remember, in 1893, there is Swami Vivekananda standing before the world audience, dressed in that wonderful, resplendent ochre robe with the turban. He did an invocation to Saraswati, and he opened his speech with this phrase, sisters and brothers of America. He said sisters first, you see. Ramakrishna's influence, undoubtedly. That cherishing of the divine mother of the sacred feminine is it sisters and brothers of america and he got a thunderous ovation you know he didn't even start speaking yet as we stressed in that other lecture last year even before he gave his address the very fact that he spoke directly to people without any formalities or conventions he was the only one who kind of went up without a prepared speech you know the fact that he was so kind of direct that alone was enough to create a response in the audience everyone got up and like Gave him a standing ovation. Because you see, it was not the words. It was the force behind the words. In fact, um, I'll read you Romain Roland. He says it so beautifully. His words are great music. Phrases in the style of Beethoven. Stirring rhythms like the march of Handel choruses. I cannot touch these sayings of his, scattered as they are, through the pages of books at 30 years distance, without receiving a thrill through my body, like an electric shock. And what shocks, what transports must have been produced when in burning words they issued forth from the lips of the hero? I cannot touch these at 30 years distance without receiving an electric shock. (laughs) 
So imagine, you know, what those people there in the audience must have felt when Swamiji directed all the soul power towards them. So they just brought sisters and brothers. They got up. So let's set that scene there and then let's rewind you know, more about nine years ago. Ah, it's kind of poetic. Nine years before that talk, yeah, precisely nine years <laughs> before that talk, 1884. Now we find young Narendranath Nata, Narendranath, not yet. Um, Swami Vivekananda. He's not yet taken his monastic vows. He's not yet wandered India. He's now just a young lad, you know, struggling with his spirituality, who has just now surrendered himself at the feet of the Guru, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, who is just now starting to understand the secret inner workings of the spirit. Young Narendranath. So we go back to that time, 1884. We see him sitting at the feet of the master. And what used to happen back then, you know, in, in, in Dakshineshwar and the temple gardens in which Ramakrishna gave his talks and went into Samadhi and would kind of, you know, conduct his Sangha. He used to kind of sit on his bed in his little room in Dakshineshwar and people would just kind of sit on the floor around him and they would have casual conversations. So sometimes he would become absorbed. He would go into Samadhi and he would just be lost in Samadhi for some time. And everyone would feel the spiritual effulgence and beauty and grandeur. He would just kind of sit there. And then when he would come out of Samadhi, he would ask for a drink of water or some kind of trivial uh, thing to just bring his mind down. And then he would expose it. So note, when he comes out of Samadhi, that's when you get like the full force of Ramakrishna. He delivers such powerful insights, you know, such exalted insights, fresh from Samadhi. He couldn't speak while he was in Samadhi. Remember that. So just today I was looking at the Discord and there were some claims. Some people were saying they were going into Samadhi. Let's, let's be careful, everyone. Let's not use that word lightly, you know. <laughs> By Samadhi is meant something quite apart from everyday, regular, peaceful moments of absorption. It's quite a serious thing. The breath stops completely. The heart stops. Verifiably and tangibly, you can see the person is quite literally dead to the world. You know, and they'll sit there in Samadhi, immobile like a stone. And in most cases, that's it. You know, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, the body will fall away in 21 days. That's it. Gone. It's the highest. And you cannot choose to come down from Samadhi. You know, there's no you left in that state uh, accordingly. And here we must stop because here we must always only speak from our own experience. So we can't speak on behalf of Samadhi. So, so few of us here know what that is. I don't know what it is. So how can I speak to you now about Samadhi when I don't know what it is? But I can at least relate to you what is there in, in scripture and what is there in the experience of great masters. It's not a thing to be trifled with, not a thing to be taken lightly. It is something that arises in the culmination of great prodigious spiritual effort over lifetimes after lifetimes of work. You know, it's quite an attainment. And most people can't come back from that attainment. That's it. They're merged in the absolute. You know, Ramakrishna would say, a salt doll goes to measure the depth of the ocean. What happens to it? It dissolves. But can the soft doll come back on its own, of its own will? You know, can it just say, oh, yes, I'm going to come down from Samadhi now and tell everyone on Discord that that happened. <laughs> no, I'm going to be fierce here because I love you and I'd like to correct you here. You know, um, but it's not like the salt doll says, yes, yes, I'll come back. I'll come back as a salt doll. It's not in the salt doll, doll's power, having been dissolved into the ocean, to reform itself as a salt doll. That was the example Ramakrishna gave. But Ramakrishna is Paramahansa is an avatar. There's something special about avatars. So like the Buddha, Shankara, Chaitanya, Deva, these beings somehow or other went over and were able to stay, come back in some sense. 
You know, it's like, do you remember in Lord of the Rings? Gandalf totally merged into the Absolute after he fought the Balrog, you know? And somehow or other, he was sent back because his work was not yet finished. And so in the return of the... Sorry, no, yeah, return of... No, 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 Two Towers. Oh my god. Oh, fans, relax. <laughs> the mistake was not made. But in the Two Towers, um, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli think they are coming face to face with Saruman. So Aragorn says, tersely, do not let the wizard speak, he will cast a spell on us. And they run into the clearing and lo and behold, flash of white light and he drops his sword and, you know, all that. And it's Gandalf, the second coming of the Christ in some sense, clothed in white resplendent robes. And he's been sent back because his work is not yet done, you know. And he remembers all of his past lives. 300 lives of men I have lived and now I find I have no time. <laughs> Tolkien's reincarnation theory making its, itself felt there. Um, yeah, so this, uh, yeah, thank you for the fact check here. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, um, yeah. Is it the Valar? Yeah, it's unclear, right? It's like the formless absolute. Yeah, the light seems to send him back to, I come now to you at the turning of the tide. You know, it's like this idea, which is a, a kind of idea that you get in South Asian philosophy too. The avatara comes at the turning of the tide, meaning when adharma, irreligiosity, or that word is hard to translate, but lack of spiritual understanding, uh, when people become confused and mired in illusion, when darkness prevails, the darkness of ignorance broods over the sleeping world, then an avatara comes to turn the tide, so to speak. The avatara can't do it single-handedly. The avatara is like, you know, like when you're playing chess and all the big pieces are gone and only pawns are left, and suddenly one pawn makes it to the very end and turns into the queen. Something like that. Not a one-to-one example. Suddenly, this being comes down. Some of you played that video game on the PlayStation 2, Star Wars Battlefront 2, you remember that video game? And suddenly you could just invoke like a Jedi Master or something. Yeah, Ishvara Koti, the idea of like, you know, forever, forever free, eternally free beings, just come back. The retinue of these, these masters. Anyway, my point here is simply to say, this avatara, and last week we talked a little bit about it, this avatara, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, the avatara of the modern age, there he was, he would go into Samadhi and he would come out and give these talks. As Dhruva is saying beautifully, you know, who can really, uh, how do you do it? Like, what do you come back to? <laughs> but he was able to come back and, and give these discourses, profound discourses. Anyway, so in one such scene, Narendra is there, young soon to be Vivekananda is there sitting with other people sitting and the conversation just you know drifts naturally from this topic to that topic always it's of a spiritual nature that's what he always talks about but eventually they start talking about Vaishnava faiths he says oh Vaishnava faith there are three tenets um, a relish for the divine name uh, love or compassion compassion for all beings and service to Vaishnava service to other devotees of God so he was talking about this and then he went into Samadhi it went. And when he came out of Samadhi, um, suddenly, with a lot of fire, he said, Compassion, uh, I'm paraphrasing, who art thou to give compassion? Thou art but a worm crawling on this earth. You giving compassion? Who are you to give compassion? You know, he would say this with some force. And he said, no, no, not compassion. Worship, service. And he went on to give this message. Most people were perplexed. But Vivekananda understood it perfectly. You know? So I'll read to you now some of Swamiji's words regarding that incident and what he understood from it. So he says here, and I'm going to read you Tejasanandaji Swami's um, from his little text. 
Ah, uh, yes, here we go. So he goes, What a strange light have I discovered in those wonderful words of the Master. How beautifully has he reconciled the ideal of bhakti, devotion, with the knowledge of Vedanta, jnana yoga. I have understood from these words of wisdom, wisdom that the ideal of Vedanta lived by the recluse outside the pale of society can be applied or can be practiced even from hearth and home and applied to all our daily schemes of life. Whatever may be the vocation of man, uh, let him understand and realize that it is God alone who has manifested himself as the world and created beings. Chitti svatantra vishva siddhi hetuhu svetchaya svabittao vishva munmilayati Awareness, free svatantriya, free awareness out of its own desire, sva itcha, using itself as a canvas, sva bittao, bitti means canvas, using itself as a canvas, unmilayati, unfurled or bloomed vishvam, the entire world. So this entire world is the emanation, the outpouring or the expression of that one free awareness that is moved by desire and will. You learned that from the Pratyabhikya Hridaya Sutra. So here, here it is, right here. Um, let him understand and realize that it is God alone who has manifested himself as the world and created beings. Of course, he's talking about the God of Vedanta, no, the absolute. He is both imminent, apara, and transcendent, para. Para, para, our lineage is called parampara, but in Tantra we have this concept, para, para, the imminent transcendent, you know. Um, it is he who has become all diverse creatures, all objects of our love, and yet he is beyond all these. So what? Let's let's kind of break that down a little bit. What do you mean he is all beings, yet he is beyond all beings? How can we kind of reconcile both imminence and transcendence? So here we plug in all that we have learned in the study of Vedanta, in the study of Kashmiri Shaivism, in the study of all the non-dual traditions, we find the key. And I'm going to propose humbly um, that it, this, this realization is closer to Kashmiri Shaivism than it is to, Advai than it is to Advaita Vedanta. And we'll see why um, in just a moment. So remember, a few weeks back, we took the example of the movie screen and the movie to demonstrate Adishtana, you know, or the dream and the waker. So Adishtana um, means essentially ground of being. So Adishtana is the principle whereby awareness forms the ground of all existence. So let's verify that immediately now. Have you ever, in your own life, in your own experience, ever been aware of something outside of awareness? You know, immediately, the logical impossibility of such a thing asserts itself. If it was outside of awareness, it could never be verified. It could never be experienced, not even in principle. As such, it would be absurd to posit things that exist outside of awareness, you know. That would be absurd. Such a thing could never be verified. It would violate all the empirical values of science. It would violate verificationism, falsificationism. You know, if you say something exists objectively apart from awareness, how unscientific. Such a thing could never be falsified. Karl Popper will sit upright in his grave. He'll like shoot out of the dirt and be like, actually, I don't have my glasses anymore, so I can't do that dork nerdy thing. You know, yesterday, Dhruva, I realized we were taking a walk. 
the walk in which we forgot our friend. But we had to go really quickly because we were trying to catch a lecture, you know? And I had my taped up glasses, taped in the middle, taped in the side, and we were walking, and this boy, this body has some asthma, you know? So the lungs were, I was like, I'm about to take a puff of my inhaler right now. I'm like, I'm the kid that gets bullied at lunch. I almost gave Dhruva my lunch money just because. You are not the body, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, Ooh, actually. <laughs> but yeah, so it would be a violation of falsificationism, which is the idea that if something can't be falsified, it's not scientific. You know, to say something exists objectively outside of awareness is highly unscientific. And don't you notice that this is exactly what we do in today's modern philosophical environment? I mean, today we live in a world dominated by um, reductionist materialism. And reductionist materialism is the philosophical view that matter and energy exist fundamentally. Matter and energy are the kind of ground of all existence. And we, consciousness, arise as a sort of epiphenomenon, as an afterthought. There comes matter and energy, and the interplay of matter and energy creates these bodies, and from these bodies emerge brains, and from the physical object called the brain emerges the subjective experience of consciousness. You know, So here, matter is prior. To use a technical phrase, matter is ontologically prior in this scheme of things. In other words, matter can exist objectively apart from awareness. Isn't that ridiculous? You know, in fact, even scientists don't think this, you know, like the modern kind of language in the quantum fields and, and, and science is like, they don't really even think this, a lot of them. A lot of them feel it's kind of weird to say matter. And they, they feel like consciousness has to be a part of it. They're just not really sure how to articulate that. And they're getting there. But um, if you say matter and energy exist objectively, it can never be verified. So such a statement violates all empirical values, all values of falsificationism and verificationism. Matter and energy cannot exist objectively apart from awareness. But wait, we're not talking about your awareness. Yes, exactly. And this is something, you know, a lot of you are familiar with Swami Sarva Priyanandaji's work, you know. Um, and Swami Sarva Priyananda is one of the best kind of you know, the most articulate person when it comes to the hard problem of consciousness. This is David Chalmers' paper and David Chalmers' work. And you can Google it, hard problem of consciousness. Actually, I like, what's it like to be a bat by David Chalmers. These are two great academic papers in the field of philosophical, uh, what do you call it, field of epistemology. No, 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 no. Yeah, epistemology. Ontological studies? Yeah, I mean, it kind of veers on the metaphysical and ontological, but it's mostly epistemological. It's mostly like a theory of mind, ways of knowing kind of thing, yeah. But definitely, it's like kind of share. We were talking about uh, materialism like that, then it becomes ontological. Ontological, yeah. So the ontological view of material reductionism, to throw some technical phrases in there, is that matter and energy is fundamental. But that leaves out consciousness and it presupposes that matter and energy can live or exist um, apart from consciousness, independently, objectively, which is a problem. What is what called, Christina? Um, um, the academic paper you're talking about. Oh, uh, what's it like to be a bat? You can get it. What's, what's it like to be a bat? I think it's publicly available, the PDF. David Chalmers. Oh, actually, that's not Chalmers. That's uh, someone else. I forget. David Chalmers' paper is Hard Problem of Consciousness. Oh, Nagel, Nagel. This What's It Like to Be a Bat is by Thomas Nagel. He does the bat thing, and Chalmers does the hard problem of consciousness. Sonar. Sonar. (laughs) 
What's it like to be a bat? No, I think he means baseball bat. Oh, inanimate object. Bat, yeah, true. bat, bat. What's it like to be a baseball bat? Oh. In a very American. He yeah. knows his audience. Da 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 da. This is the bat knocks out matter and energy out of the ballpark. <laughs> anyway, um, so this idea that matter and energy exist, yes, objectively, cannot be shown. But wait. I'm not saying here, we don't, by this we don't mean that matter and energy exist apart from your personal subjective experience. So that's like saying, if Nish doesn't see it, it therefore doesn't exist. That's not what we're saying. You know, that would be solipsism and a very dangerous kind of philosophical dead end. The idea that things only exist because they exist to me might lead to some pretty apparent uh, uh, behavior patterns. You know, I might start to see all of you as figments of my imagination and I might start to uh, kind of be mean and yeah, be egotistical and use you for my own ends because after all, you all just you're just I only exist, right? I Nish alone without a second exist. That would be lonely and tremendously ethically problematic. So by this, we don't mean solipsism. We could mean subjective idolism. Yes, there are Vedantists who are subjective idolists. There are Buddhist philosophers who are subjective idolists. Yes, Anisha, that path is also there. Because it's a good school of philosophy, right? Subjective idolism was championed in the West by Bishop Berkeley. And Bishop Berkeley, um, it was a very dramatic and radical form of empiricism. He said, the table only exists when I'm looking at it, when I'm aware of it. When I'm not looking at it, who's to say it exists? I can't verify it. Only when I look at it again, it's there, you know? How does that relate to the Schrodinger thing? Yeah, exactly that. So it evolves into like uh, Heisenberg and Schrodinger, you know, this kind of Copenhagen conference and all of that. It evolves into the quantum field. Huh? The uncertainty principle. Yes, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Can you explain that briefly, Dhruva? What is the uncertainty principle? Oh, Lord. Uh, basically, the uncertainty principle um, deals with... Uh, that if we don't direct, I'm not a physicist. If we don't, if we don't have direct observation of something, then we can't verify uh, its its position in, uh, in in space time. So, in um, one thing that uh, the certainty principle applies to is that when you have electrons, um, you can measure their velocity or you can measure their location in space. But you, if you have the location, you can't measure the velocity. If you have the velocity, you can't measure the location uh, because of the uncertainty principle. And uh, that is part of why that they have come to term that uh, electrons don't have a spatial uh, a, a, sp a spatial dimension in and of themselves until they're observed. Yeah. So they're considered they're considered within their own realm of existence to be like a um, disturbance in a, in a in an energetic field, and they only take uh, they only take a definitive location once we observe them. Right, mm -hmm. electron probability clouds. I've heard it phrased. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah Where? Thank you, Druva. That was beautiful. And here's the thing: like I like how you said I'm not a physicist because it's true. We have to be very careful as, you know, Swami Sarvapriyananda often stresses this too in his lectures. Like, we have to be careful when we make claims on behalf of Schrodinger, Heisenberg, uh, you know, Copenhagen inference. We have to be careful because we aren't trained theoretical physicists. We aren't scientists. We are, you know, in Dhruva's case, monks, householder practitioners. We are spiritual practitioners. So at best, we can maybe kind of make references, but only as like a kind of like, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, please. There's a really good book called Vedanta in Modern Physics. 
Um, that is a collection of articles uh, posted in Vedantic magazines. I have it here. I'm not going to dig it out. Um, compiled by a monk of the Ramakrishna order. That's really good if, if you take an interest in, in physics like I do and you're interested in Vedanta or religion in general. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> I, I definitely recommend it. It, goes, it, 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 has, it has a very large um, portion of it devoted to the uncertainty. Ah, beautiful. Vedanta and modern physics, yeah, was it, Dhruva? Yes, there you go. So let, let's leave it to that, the, the physicist there, too, because we don't want to make any glib remarks, but that's a good reference. Let's go there for kind of this idea. But yes, yeah, certainly we can say here at least that Bishop Berkeley might be the predecessor for Schrodinger and Heisenberg and all of that. But let's, at least for my part, I'm going to leave it at that, lest I be glib or say anything that I'm not qualified to say, you know. Like we say, we want to talk only from experience, from what we know to be true. You know, so I don't know these things. So let's, I'll back away, uh, humbly, meekly. But um, uh, what do we say? Yes, Bishop Berkeley. One story I wanted to tell you was about Samuel Johnson. So he was another philosopher and Dr. Johnson was walking with Bishop Berkeley. And he said, I, uh, he wanted to, you know, kind of dispute this subjective idolism. So apparently, according to legend, he kicked a rock and he said, I refute it thus. Because I feel the pain of this rock, your subjective idolism is nonsense. Obviously, the rock exists. But there's a fallacy here, right? Because you could just as easily do that in a dream or in a hallucination. Just because pain is appearing, just because a sensation of a rock is appearing, doesn't mean that it's an actuality. doesn't mean the rock is actually there. So yes, yes, there's subjective idolism. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be solipsism or subjective idolism. All we're saying here is that in principle... Something for it to exist must exist within awareness. It must be internal to awareness. For nothing external to awareness can ever be verified and therefore ever be meaningfully said to exist. So the supposition of matter or energy as fundamental cannot work. Awareness has to be fundamental because without awareness, you couldn't have those other things. So you can see how awareness, to be technical about it, is ontologically prior to the objects of awareness, such as matter, such as energy, etc., etc., etc. The falsification would be this. Show me one thing that exists apart from consciousness, which sounds a bit like a tautology, doesn't it? But if you can do it, that's the falsification. It's, it's provided. If you can do it, then you falsified it. So at least you're, the metric of falsification is there. But you're asking me to show you. Yes. Which automatically implies consciousness. Yes, that's exactly right. There's a logical inability to do that. So you can arrive through reason at this conclusion. That awareness must be fundamental. But also, be careful not to logic this too much. Remember, there are certain kinds of ways in which the Upanishads are not a philosophical text per se. They are not written from logic or reason. They are written from direct experience. But direct experience must not contradict logic or reason. So that's why you can kind of tease out certain arguments but remember that these weren't delivered in argumentative form. They were delivered in kind of direct, absorbed revelations. And now later, you know, post hoc, we can kind of maybe derive some semblance of an argument. Now, importantly here, it's the felt sense or the resonance of this argument that's important. The truth value of this argument is in this intuitive feeling. Like, really, we make an appeal to the heart here. Search your feelings. You know it to be true, Luke. Okay, Lord of the Rings check, Star Wars check. We're, we're making good time here. Just one rock and roll reference left and we can be finished with this lecture. <laughs> but uh, so um, this feeling of, oh, without awareness, nothing could exist. 
in principle. This feeling of, yes, awareness is part of this picture in some fundamental way. It's inalienable. It might not be able to exist without matter or, or conscious uh, or energy either. And the claim of Kashmiri Shaivism is you need matter and energy to even have awareness. They're invariably concomitant. God is not awareness. God is the third thing, that which unites seer and seen. You know, so there's, there's some technicalities here, make no mistake. But the point that I'm essentially angling for, that I'm driving at here, is a simple one. And it's just, just this. Prior to all experiences is an experiencer. An experience would not make sense without an experiencer. And there is a relationship, experiencer, experienced, experiencing, that's grounded in some kind of ground, some kind of reality. And that reality might be likened to a movie screen. And upon the movie screen emerges the scenes of the movie. So whether it's a horror movie or a comedy, or whether it's um, a boring documentary about the Russian Civil War, whatever happens to be the case, those scenes... Those people, those objects, whatever is being shown, depends on the movie screen. Without the movie screen, those scintillations of light wouldn't be there, you see. So without awareness, there could be no objects of awareness. So in that sense, the movie screen is adhishtana, the ground of all existence, the ground of all movies. So this awareness is the ground of all aware uh, things that you are aware of. You know, And it alone is necessary for every other thing. So it's ontologically prior. So awareness, therefore, we could say is the absolute. You can call it consciousness or pure knowingness. You know, it's the absolute sense of the word awareness, not an individual sense, an absolute sense. So your consciousness is perhaps a part of that awareness, you know, at least at this level. While we speak to each other as intellects, that's the sense that we might feel. Okay, so that's awareness. And given that claim that we just made, that existence and awareness are somehow invariably concomitant or inextrinsically linked, we have to say that existence is consciousness and consciousness is existence. Common to all things that exist is existence itself. You know, common to all the objects in my room, common to all the objects in the world, Vishwam, you know, all the things... All of them share one thing, and that is the existence itself. That they exist is common to all things that exist. You know, so existence itself. And one thing that's clear to me, that they exist is made verifiable by the fact that they are vibrating within, interior to, as a part of awareness. So they exist because of awareness. We can collapse existence and consciousness. Sat chit. So you can just call it chit. By consciousness is implied existence. And not only that, there is a tremendous felicity, meaning, beauty, and joy in recognizing this. In recognizing that this entire world is internal to awareness. That awareness alone exists and everything else arises and dissolves as an appearance within awareness. I mean, think about it. You're sitting in a movie and you're watching these horrific scenes being played out. You're entirely identified with Jamie Lee Curtis running away from the serial killer. You really feel yourself to be someone who is in danger. And then suddenly, in a flash of insight, you realize, oh, it's just a movie. You know? It's just light playing upon a movie screen. And not only that, you recognize that the movie screen was there before the movie, is there now during the movie, and will be there after the movie. And not only that, you thirdly recognize that whatever happens in the movie will not leave any permanent impressions upon the movie screen. Even if it's like a Bollywood film and there are like explosions, 
you know, if there are like car chases and Shah Rukh Khan is walking out of a burning building, he's putting, you know, his sunglasses on and there's an explosion and all that happens. If you go and inspect the movie screen after the movie, you won't see any like pockmarks or debris, you know. In one lecture, Swami Sarva Piranda was giving this idea very beautifully. So I'll cite him here. I think it was the lecture on um, non-attached self or something. In that lecture, he was talking very nicely about Vivarta Vada and the movie screen. So I point you to that for a further kind of exploration of, of this idea. But you see, these are the three realizations. Imagine you're sitting there watching this movie and suddenly it occurs, occurs to you, oh, it's a movie. Everything I took to be real and so heavy and so serious wasn't. Um, it was a scintillation of light and the movie screen will not be harmed. You know, the movie screen is eternal. It's fine. And, you know, once you realize that, don't you think it makes the movie finally enjoyable? You know, now it's that it's not such a big deal anymore. Now you can kind of see the beauty of it. You can sort of enjoy the movie. This is kind of a glib way of saying that supreme ananda, that bliss, it's not really quite one-to-one, -one, this metaphor. But that's why we call this Satchid Ananda, you know? So that's the absolute according to Vedanta. The absolute principle is existence, consciousness, bliss, and everything arises as an appearance in it, but it alone exists. So you might call this philosophy absolute monism. Absolute. Only one thing exists. Sorry, no exceptions. But Maya, no. Maya doesn't exist. What world? No exceptions. It's absolute monism, you know. Um, that's why Vivekananda says so beautifully, from the lowest forms of idolatry to the highest, most absolute monism. You know, he's kind of setting this up as the loftiest idea of religion. For in fact, it appears as the highest conception of Vedanta, the, the, the teachings of the Upanishads, the world's most ancient um, extant spiritual literature. And this is the ultimate conclusion. And everything kind of comes after that. Vedanta is a Siddhanta, meaning a final revelation, a truth. And everything else kind of speaks to that truth. Patanjali speaks to it, you know, uh, Kapila speaks to it. Everything kind of echoes that one truth. And this is the truth that we have just now kind of scratched the surface of, at least intellectually. Okay, the next thing to recognize. That absolute, tatvamasi, that's what you are. And at this point, the mistake that most of us make is to assume that we understand it only because we understand it intellectually. In other words, we make the mistake that Nish is the absolute. Oh, existence, consciousness, bliss, that's what I am? Good. I'll take that and go. I'll add it to my Instagram bio or something. <laughs> Existence, consciousness, absolute. <laughs> so that's the problem. It's not us, the ego, not us, the personality, not us, the knower. The knower is not Brahman. The knower is not the absolute. The knower in Vedanta is called the Pramata. Pramata is, you could say, maybe a part of the absolute. You can use some Vishishtadvaita here, but it's not the absolute. Yes, Aham Brahmasmi. Wow, yes, let's, let's do them. Let's do the Mahavakyas. Um, Aham Brahmasmi, right? Birha Daranya Upanishad. Um, Tatvam Masi, Chandogya Upanishad. What else? Let's collect the Mahavakyas. Two more. Ayam Atma Brahma. Where's that from? Mandukya? Huh? Uh, no, Mandukya is Tatvam Masi. Really? I thought that was Chandogya. I could be wrong. Maybe it's Mandukya. But they all come from the Upanishads, and there are many, these Mahavakyas, these great sayings. They're kind of like uh, Badamch lines. They're clinchers. They're the punchline. <laughs> Dhruva will enjoy that. They're the punchline. You know, that's the, the point of it all. The, the kind of moment where it snaps, and it's, it's this ultimate revelation that I am that absolute. In fact, Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, said it beautifully. The ground, not Eckhart Tolle, the 
who he's named after, Meister Eckhart, the German uh, master. He said, the ground of God's being and the ground of my being are the same ground, one and the same ground. That's from a Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. He even coined the term, I think it might have been him, the term Godhead. The idea that God is a kind of sprout of the Godhead. And that Godhead is the Nirguna Brahman of Vedanta, the Absolute. Now you are that. And how do you know that? Well, through all the Vivekas that we do together here. You know, basically, very basically, all the Vivekas that we do, very basically, can be summarized as follows. They are Atma, Anatma, Viveka. Viveka means discernment. Atma, Anatma means discernment between the self and the not-self. That's essentially what all the Vivekas or all the practices of Jnana Yoga are. They are discerning between what you are and what you are not. Atma, Anatma, Viveka. So there are several, and the one that we like to do often is Drigdrishya Viveka, the discrimination between the seer and the seen, where we say very simply, I see this bottle, therefore it is the seen and my eyes are the seer. I know I am not this bottle because it is the subject, oh sorry, it is the object and I am the subject. It is inanimate and I am animate. It is jara, I am chid. You know, like stuff like that. It is changing, my eyes are less changing, stuff like that. So I won't belabor this point, this we do a lot. This viveka is just being able to identify what I am not. And if I know that I truly, if in my heart I know that I am not this Ayurvedic water, this lecture brought to you by Ayurvedic water bottles. This <laughs> is the really best, pr- no, okay, <laughs> but this would be the best product placement yeah. moment. Drik Drishya Viveka, I am not the seer, I am, I am the seer, not the scene. This Ayurvedic copper water bottle, now with new features, coming with self-cleansing internal copper. This is not me, this is the scene. Now it even comes with stickers. So if you purchase yours now, within the next 20 days, you will get this Love Serve Remember sticker from the <laughs> it's a great chance to show objects right <laughs> anyway um but yeah so this thing i know i'm not it so i've it no this is important i've interiorized myself away from it i'm the eyes not the things that the eyes see then i can interiorize further i can go from the eyes to the mind i can say just as the eyes saw the cup my mind now see the eyes my mind sees the eyes you know, nothing wrong with that, Josh. If you're going to be materialistic, at least be spiritually materialistic. <laughs> Just the thought. <laughs> no one goes from materialism to complete non-attachment all at once. No, go through spiritual materialism. If you're going to buy shit, buy altar stuff. I don't know, buy spiritual books. Nothing wrong with spiritual materialism. Sorry, Chogyang Trungpa. You know, we have different audiences. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> no, with love and respect, of course. Great master. Okay, so... Now, notice it's a process of interiorization. That's all we're doing here. I've interiorized myself away from the objects of the world. Then I've interiorized myself one step further away from these sense organs themselves. In the Patanjali yoga tradition, this is called Pratyahara, which is turning inward. Like uh, in the Gita, it says the tortoise drawing its limbs back into the shell. Like that, I am withdrawing all my sense currents away from their respective sense objects and back into the place from which they issued forth in the first place. So it's interiorization, you see. So to realize that the mind is looking at the eye requires some meditative ability, no? Most of us can't understand this. The eyes can look at the cup, duh, but what do you mean the mind looks at the eyes? That's weird. 
Isn't the mind the eyes? Most of us can't feel this distinction. But if you're particularly intuitive, if you've meditated enough, you will immediately understand, oh yes, just like the eyes are able to look at the cup, the mind can say, oh, the eyes are now, black guy here, now the eyes a little squinty, the vision is a little blurry, you know, can't see anything. Dhruva is just a patch of white purity. <laughs> just pure purity, you know? <laughs> Light coming through. No, no, I actually, I can see you. I have contacts today. So I can see you. But, um, so if you smile at me, I'm seeing you and I'm smiling back. I'm happy to see you smiling, you know. <laughs> and if you write in the chat, I can see it. So just know that if you want to ask questions or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so now notice this interiorization. It's kind of difficult. But if you have the he who hath ears here, this feeling of, oh, I can look at my eyes. I can notice when my vision is blurry. I can notice when my vision is good. I can put my glasses off, take my glasses on and off, I can put contacts, take them off. I can see the eyes as if the eyes are now an object and my mind is now the subject. So I've interiorized. This is a profound step. If you can do this, you have now interiorized away from the body. You can give the body back to nature. You can say, body, I've been claiming you my whole life, but now I know I am no more you than I was the cup. You are no more mine than any of these objects. You can add your Marxism here if you want. No private property. You don't even own your body. No, I'm only kidding. I always... <laughs> There's no Marxist propaganda no, here at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, the problem with that philosophy is that it doesn't address the deeper dimensions of life. It tries to fix things superficially on an external political and socio sociological level without addressing the issues on a psychological, spiritual level out of which those symptoms arose in the first place. Okay. That's the problem. Could you say that about any political and yes. sociological system? Absolutely. Vivekananda said it beautifully. God and truth are my only politics. All else is trash. Okay. Yes. All else is trash. Once he was asked to comment upon widow remarriage, which was a big in issue in India. And in the 1890s, you know, startlingly modern for his time, he said, why are you asking me? Go ask the women. And what they tell you, do that. That's like kind of, uh, it's echoed now in our conversations around pro-choice and pro-life. That if it's an issue about women, women ought to be commenting on it. That's what Vivekananda said, even back then. So he was notoriously apolitical. But his message was supremely political in the deepest sense, right? So yes, anyway, just the joke here is that you don't own things except by pretending that you do. Similarly, you don't own this body except by pretending that you do. And through a lot of meditation, your insight will develop enough to show you that the mind can interiorize itself away from the body. And you can practice with this. You know, the next time pain arises in the body, do this uh, Atma and Atma Viveka. Just pause and reflect. Am I the body? Am I in pain? Or is pain not just an experience arising and fading away in this moment? I am the mind sitting calmly watching the body in all of its antics. You know, then, and this next step is the the critical step, the step that most of us struggle to make. This is the singularity in our spiritual life. And that's the step of interiorizing yourself also away from the mind, which takes deep, deep meditation. You know, the, the feeling of, oh, I am the seer of the mind. I was never the mind, actually. I was the seer of the mind. So the mind is now as much an object to me as the body is and as the cup is. So the cup the body, the mind, all belong to nature. They are not mine. They are just objects arising, appearing, and dissolving in me, the seer. 
This is Sankhya philosophy. You know, according to Sankhya, you are the inviolable, ever free, ever pure spirit known as Purusha. Yes. And as Dhruva says beautifully, all of this other stuff, all these objects, all these thoughts, all these physical things, all these circumstances, they're all Prakriti, which just means like nature. It just means inert, inert matter. So there's this homogeneous field of Prakriti appearing to me, Purusha, as this mind, as this body, as the circumstances of my life. And my mistake was thinking all of it was real. I really thought I was the mind, I was the body, I am in these situations. I really thought I was in the world dealing with the things that I was dealing with. I really believe that. In fact, Christopher Isherwood and Swami Prabhavananda have a beautiful commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Sutra. It's called How to Know God, I think called knowing God or something. Anyway, how to know God. And in there, he says, gives a beautiful illustration. He says, can you imagine if a light bulb said it was electricity? So electricity flows into the light bulb and the light bulb shines, right? And the light bulb says, oh, I am electricity. I, with my pear-shaped bulb, with my filaments, I am electricity. It's not. Electricity runs through it, giving it light. It's not electricity. And that's like the ego saying, I am consciousness. I am Brahman. I am awareness absolute. It's not. It's just a kind of reflection of that awareness. That awareness is the electricity. That's why Paramahansa Ramakrishna would say so beautifully, I am but a machine. You know, the Divine Mother is the operator. She's like the electric current running through the filament of this mind body. You know? Yeah, right? They would sing Nirvana Shatkam. And then he would say, they would say, Shivoham, Shivoham. And he would say, not I, but thou, but thou, Shivotvam, Shivotvam. <laughs> he was very averse to this idea of I. Because as long as you are the body and the mind, to say I is an error. Therein lies all of our suffering. That primordial error of superimposing identity onto the things that are inert. The body, the mind, the world. And so, this is what yoga is for. Primarily, Raja Yoga. So when you do Raja Yoga, meaning Patanjali Yoga, that is meditation, when you do that, what you're attempting to do is to go, yeah, it implies a separate you. If I say I, it implies I apart from everyone. Exactly. And therein lies all these problems, right? You see, when we're trying to do ethics today, we're trying to negotiate one eye with the other eye. What's this eye going to do about that eye? And that's why ethical philosophies are so confused because they are founded upon an illusion. They're all founded upon a critical error. And it's no wonder all these ethical philosophies suck. <laughs> they all fail to satisfy the deepest ethical intuitions of humanity. Deontology, utilitarianism, blah, you know, nonsense. Because they're all premised upon one thing, an illusion, an ignorant uh, mistake, which is I exist independently, separately from everyone else. And they're all, that's all there is to it. Now I have to figure out how to live with all of you people, you know, <laughs> That's the problem, yeah. Treating the symptom. And and this is ultimately Jesus' maxim too, right? Love God with all of thy might, which is that Vedantic understanding of God as the non-dual absolute, and love thy neighbor as thyself. We're you see how they, they follow? Love thy neighbor as thyself follows as a necessary consequence of realizing God and loving God. To love God is to love thy neighbor. And that's what Vivekananda proved with his teaching and his life, which we're just now zeroing in on. So let's close this part of the lecture very briefly by just saying, when you interiorize yourself enough, 
And you do that through yoga, through meditation. This is the royal path, the path par excellence for that realization. Because you see, what's going on in Raja Yoga, in meditation, is you're taking a scattered mind full of thoughts and ideas. And most of those thoughts and ideas are infected with this I-ness, this I-sense. These are my thoughts. These are my ideas. Yesterday, Swami Maharaj, you know, Maharaj is joking about intellectual copyright, property laws, <laughs> copyright, you know. I claim this, this thought, yes. Like I'll take you to court. We have a typist here, a court, a court official. <laughs> so he can say he's an authority on these matters. <laughs> but anyway, so I feel like I am all these thoughts. I claim it all. I claim my mind. I claim my body. I claim this world. And therein lies my suffering. But if in meditation... I can go from many thoughts to one to, to few thoughts. And if I can go from few thoughts to one thought, then by the grace of the divine, I might be able to drop that one thought too. And in that moment, there will be a sudden super conscious experience known as Samadhi, complete absorption in the self. So in the Yoga Sutra, Atta Yoga Nushasanam, and now an exposition on yoga. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. Yoga is the complete cessation of the mind stuff. To use Swamiji's phrase, it's psychic control. Rein in the various thought currents. Yoke the chariot. Place it fixedly onto the self. Um, and Travis here is asking, what is the difference between a non-verbal, non-ego understanding of the interiorization and meditating on it? Yeah, good, good question. Let's, uh, if you're here, Travis, for the Q&A in just a few moments, let's save it for then and we can all kind of comment on it together. So we'll all open our mics and just hang out. Uh, we're just now approaching the end of the lecture. So let's put, just hold that for a moment, Travis. Hold on to that idea. It's a good one. But coming back to this, this thing. So if I'm able to bring all of my thought currents to one thought and that thought drops, I would have successfully gone beyond all mind. I would have to use the, the language you're using, interiorized myself beyond the mind, be behind the mind. I would have gone backstage. In other words, I can appreciate... Uh, I've gone backstage. I've gone backstage. <laughs> I can appreciate the movie screen. Why? Because I turned off the movie. Once I turn off the movie, the movie screen is immediately apparent to me and I go, ah. So, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha. And the third line is really nice. Tada drashtu swarupe vastanam. Vastanam means to abide. You know, so swarupa. The, my own self. Tada drashtu swarupa vastam. Then you will abide in you. Will come home. To use that wonderful phrase that Andromeda provided. You'll come home to yourself. And who are you? The inviolable, ever free awareness. That which was existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute. That's when you realize it. You know, in deep meditation. But there is another way too. And that is through persistent self-inquiry. And persistent self-inquiry, yeah, remember, yes, <laughs> you bring it back to yourself. You remember yourself with what you really are, you know. Now, um, that will solve all of your problems. That's the end of all of your suffering. Because you realize what you are can never be harmed, can never be threatened. The opening of A Course in Miracles says this beautifully. Um, nothing real can be harmed. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. If you truly knew that. Not just as an intellectual concept, but truly as a knowing. Oh, you'll be fine. So that's what Sankhya will do. That's what yoga will do. And the point of all of that is to realize the Upanishadic truths. There's another way too, but it's a difficult way. And it's a way that's perhaps not appropriate for our age, for our time. 
be given that we're so embodied. And that's jnana yoga. And this is where you inquire into these things in every single moment. Make no mistake, for jnana yoga to work, you can't just do it for two hours at a lecture while some drunken monkey talks at you on Zoom. You know, that's not enough. You have to do it every single moment of every single day. Uh, as Shankara says so beautifully in Aparokshana Bhuti, from moment to moment, you must be doing this self-inquiry. What am I? Is this world real? So this kind of discernment between the real and unreal, you know, that's kind of going on over and over and over. So these things, Raja Yoga and Jnana Yoga, are largely responsible for the deep insights of the masters. Vivekananda had this insight. The insight given through much meditation, much self-control and much inquiry, the insight that I am the absolute and the absolute alone is. The Buddha had a similar insight through much meditation. You see, Shankara had that insight also through much spiritual practice. So as the Upanishad says, this insight cannot be obtained without Upasana and Nishita, without meditation, without self-control. So spiritual life is largely that. Meditation and self-control. Now you see what happened. The moment the Buddha got wind of this insight, what did he do? He didn't just sit down and dwell forevermore in perennial bliss. He got up and he walked all over India spreading this message. You know, so he, he just couldn't, he was like Neo in the Matrix. You know, his work was now to awaken others to the Anatman, the not-self. So you see, what was the message of the Buddha? To leave behind the relative and live entirely for the Absolute. That is how the Buddha quickened the spiritual consciousness of India. And last week we talked about the waning of the Vedic civilization around the 6th and, and 5th century BCE. You know, the priestcraft and the tyranny of a priestcraft that had forgotten the meaning of its own meaningless rituals. The torpor and lassitude of India was whipped up into a spiritual ecstasy, into a frenzy, into a true kind of genuine searching, thanks to the Buddha. And what did the Buddha do? He just walked around and reminded everyone that there is no happiness to be obtained in the relative. None whatsoever. As long as you look for permanence in a permanently shifting flux of relative things, you will suffer. And you have thus suffered all of your life thus far and all of your previous incarnations because you have sought the permanent in the relative. You have been engaged in a not noble quest. <laughs> so the Buddha said, leave all of that behind, you know? Enough with all of this worldliness. The next promotion won't do it. The last one didn't. The next relationship won't do it. The last one didn't. You know, the next cookie won't do it. The last one didn't. Come to your senses, India. Wake up, arise, awake, and march on. Stop not till the goal is reached, which Swamiji said. Yes, the Buddha's realization, sarvam dukkam dukkam. You know, everything is suffering. And basically what he's saying is everything is relative. So notice, great masters often begin their legacy with this statement. Everything is relative. Leave it. Leave it. Now, devote yourself to the absolute. So someone like Jesus could simply walk down a beach, say to Peter, enough of your fishing. Come with me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And he'd be like, oh, all right. All right. <laughs> Leaves everything behind and goes with the Buddha, you know? That's the power of this. See, what they gave us was the impetus to action. They didn't give us a philosophy. Please don't make a mistake, you know. These people weren't here to teach us concepts. They were here to inspire us with those concepts to make them true in our own experience. So they came to speak not to our intellects. They came to speak to our will. At the end of one of these talks from the Buddha, from Vivekananda, you should feel like now it's time to do something about it. 
Not like, oh, you know, I, I, I know something nice. Now I'm going to go write a blog post about it. No, it's like now I'm going to meditate. Now I'm going to realize this truth that I've glimpsed intuitively. So that's what the Buddha did. And he walked around to say the relative is unhappiness, is dissatisfaction. The absolute alone, you know, is worth seeking. Nirvana. He defined it not in so positive terms, but kind of reject the absolute terms. Okay, that was the Buddha. Shankara did the same. What you are suffering is a snake. But it's not a real snake. It's an illusory snake arising from a real rope. Give up the snake, go and find the rope. You know, so move towards the absolute, leave the relative behind. So you see Shankara, Buddha, the Christ, Paramahansa, Ramakrishna, they're all saying one thing. Give up lust and greed. Give up the relative. Give up the world. Seek God. Wisdom with the world is foolishness with God. Foolishness with God is wisdom in the world. Give it all up. Live for something higher. Live for something more ennobling and more befitting a soul such as yours you know live to discover who you really are not continually get lost in, in series of identifications that change in every instant that's the ultimate legacy of these people so vivekananda came thunderously with a similar message so he discovered this you know through raja yoga yeah spring for the nicer room hafiz says fear is the cheapest room in the house i'd like to see you living in better accommodations my friend <laughs> so yeah, oh, it's spiritual realty. <laughs> spiritual realty. <laughs> okay, so let's close with this uh, phrase now. I mean, with this final culmination of the idea. So you know the truth, this insight is derived through Raja and Jnana Yoga. Um, and that's what these spiritual masters perhaps had through the intensity of their self-control, inquiry, and meditation. Once they got the idea, though, they set to work. So we'll look at the rest of what Swamiji says. So he said that. You know, um, and now we can understand a little bit as to what he means, hopefully, by this. He is both imminent and transcendent. Transcendent as the movie screen, imminent in the sense that without the movie screen, you wouldn't have the images. The images themselves are, uh, maybe clay and pot is better here. The pot itself is, is the clay. Um, God alone, who has manifested himself as the world and created beings. He is both imminent and transcendent. It is he who has become all diverse creatures, objects of our love, and yet he is beyond all of these. Such realization of divinity in humanity leaves no room for egotism. By realizing it, a man cannot have any jealousy or pity for any other being. Service of man, knowing him to be the manifestation of God, purifies the heart, and in no time, in no time, such an, literally, in no time, such an aspirant realizes himself as part and parcel of God. Existence, knowledge, bliss, absolute. However, if it be the will of the Lord, the day will soon come when I shall proclaim this grand truth before the world at large. I shall make it the common property of all, the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, the Brahmin and the pariah. That was in 1884. Young Naren said, if the Lord wills it, I shall make this known to the world. This was his aspiration. This is what he wanted to impart. And lo and behold, in nine years' time, he would be standing in front of the world, you know, the world audience. And his first message, of course, was universality of all religions. But as we go on through the other lectures, throughout the conference, throughout his time in America and, and the UK, um, we hear these ideas repeated over and over and over again. For their fullest exposition, there's karma and bhakti yoga. Notice those two volumes come together. So what is the idea? It's this. 
And it's from Kashmiri Shaivism, perhaps you can say. You have consciousness, the absolute. We know now what that is. And we know now that this world depends on it, arises from it. So everything that you see is but a name and form. In actuality, beyond that name and form is that one absolute. So Chittisvatantra, awareness is free. Free to do what? Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu, to cause the existence of everything. Sva Icha Sva Bittau, Vishva Munmilayati, using itself as a canvas, moved by its own desire, it spewed forth all of this. So when you see someone, are you really seeing a person? Or are you not seeing a scintillation of that white light that alone exists? Is not that person standing before you now actually Shiva? And is not the appropriate attitude before Shiva service? If you are going to wash the feet of the Lord at the altar, it's better that you worship at the altar of your brother and sister man. That was Vivekananda's great sermon when he landed in South, South India after his conquest of the West. You know, Vivekananda, once he walked into a railway station, he met a disciple there. The disciple, inspired by Vivekananda, left everything and followed him. I thought that was such a sweet story because it mirrors that story with Christ and Peter on the beach. This was Sharat Chandra Ghosh, you know, who later became Swami, Sadananda. So he just followed, he just up and left and followed Vivekananda from a railroad station while he spent his two years, 1890 to 1892, wandering, you know. So I just wanted to say that as an aside. Anyway, here is the, the soul-stirring message. If you serve one another as a person to a person, egotism will arise, a sense of superiority, a sense of compassion. Oh, I am the compassionate one. Look at what I did for you. You know, you'll become restless. You'll drive yourself mad with this desire to fix the world, to help others, to bring other people up. How can you bring other people up when they are already God? How can you help or serve others when they are already God? Does that mean you stop serving them? Stop helping them? Stop relating nicely to them? No, just the opposite. You intensify your service to them. You give yourself up even more for them. Why? Because that's what you do in front of God. So the way to do this in our daily lives is to see our work as worship. If someone comes to our counter at Starbucks and we make coffee, we don't think, oh, I'm making coffee for some miserable son of a bitch who's driving off to a job they hate. No, I'm making coffee for God. How would you make coffee if your Ishta Devata suddenly strode up to the Starbucks altar and said, give me a frappuccino for Durga, please, and make it too. Shiva's outside in the car. You know? <laughs> Can you imagine what an attitude that would, how you, your attitude would change at work? So then when you feel that, a reverence will come. And then here's what happens. Say you're at a soup kitchen, right? And you're ladling um, kitchery into someone's bowl or whatever. If you think you are the doer, if you think you are helping that homeless man, there will be in your eyes, perhaps, that vibe, you know? You will transmit to them, I am the helper, you are the helped. And they will feel disempowered by your service. Why? Because your gaze has affirmed and reified their role as the oppressed, their position in relation to you as the weak one, as the one who needs you, the one who depends on you. You do them a disservice if you serve them with the mentality that you are the server, that you are the doer, that you are the compassionate one, that driven by your pity and your benevolence, you are helping them now. You force them to be indebted to you, a mere mortal. You become their God and thereby you jeopardize your ability to find the real God, you see? Now, see what happens if you see them as God instead. Now the homeless man comes before you and you look upon him, her, uh, them, not as uh, a damaged, injured person needing your help. They need nothing. They're Shiva. Yet, 
you are serving them anyway because it is your privilege. It is your good karma that you can now give Shiva a bite to eat. And then when you look at them like that and you serve them as if you are serving Shiva and you say, Lord, Lord, accept this food. You know, I've made it with all of my heart to the best of my ability. Me, a weak you know, like just, unable. I, I, what can I do? But I tried. And here is this prasad for you, Lord. And the person receives it. Then they are truly helped. You know, because then the help is not just in the food. It's in the nurturance and the spiritual empowerment that comes from that service. Man does not live by bread alone, you know. So when you give him food, actually feed him. Feed him with your worship. Feed him with your gaze. Gaze upon your children like baby Gopala, like Ram Lala, you know. Scold them when they need to be scolded. Yashoda still scolded baby Krishna, you know. Uh, Jatadari, um, Ramakrishna's Vaishnava guru, still scolded baby Ram Lala, you know. He climbed on his back and, you know. Um, you might have to scold them, but never as like a mom to a child. Always as a devotee to the worshipped. This is the Vatsalya Bhava, mother to baby Krishna, baby Jesus, whatever, baby Shiva. Huh? Then if they're your brother, sister, friend, if they're like a homeless person, Shiva, incarnate. See the Jiva as Shiva. Why is that the motto of the Ramakrishna mission? Because that's the central idea of Swamiji. Central idea of Swami Vivekananda is that feeling of work as worship. Now you see what you've done. You've consecrated every action in your day as worship, as spiritual practice. Now we have no excuse. We can't say we have no time for meditation because everything that we do is meditation. And so Andromeda says beautifully, this is the problem perhaps with the wellness industry, right? This idea that as a yoga teacher, oh, I can help you. I have something that you don't. I'm giving it to you. What nonsense? What can I do? You know, who am I? But a worm crawling upon this earth. I don't even have the right to show compassion to you, you know? Because if I do that, then I am making the mistake that you are you and separate from me. And insofar as you are separate from me, I must recognize that you are God. Now God appearing to me as Anisha, as Josh, as Ants, you know. If you look into people, you realize, oh, I'm just looking at God only. Only God exists. Where is there a place where God is not? And when you realize that, then we'll never say I have no time for meditation. The Starbucks coffee will be meditation. Feel yourself doing it, you know, making that coffee with such devotion, such precision. That's your Raja Yoga. Focusing on just that coffee making, you know. Um, then you take that and you give it to the person. And even your act of giving is Raja Yoga, you know, because you're so focused. Have you noticed when you do a puja, how focused you have to be to wave the lights and say the appropriate mantras like we did earlier? There's a kind of Raja Yoga inherent in Bhakti. In fact, in Raja Yoga, we often advise to focus on your Ishta Devata, your chosen ideal, you know, because every lover is a perfect yogi. Anybody who's ever had a crush on someone, he knows what it is to be obsessed, <laughs> to be single-pointed. So love and meditation come together. Meditation and love are empowered by knowledge. Jnana Yoga shows you through Vedantic realization that all this is verily Brahman, for only Brahman is. And then comes karma. So you see, karma yoga is the harmonizing of bhakti, raja, and jnana. Once you achieve that, then every moment will be consecrated to spiritual practice. So let this be a close to this lecture and a singularity in all of our lives. May we go away 
from this time together, fully embodying this ideal of Swamiji, the ideal of work as worship. May each one of our steps be taken towards serving humanity as worship. May every word and breath be offered up as so many flowers at the feet of the only God worth worshipping, that is our brother and sister man. Vivekananda would say again and again, may I be born a thousand times to suffer innumerable miseries, I'm paraphrasing, if only to worship the one God uh, that I want to worship. And that is the God that is the wicked, the, the weak, the feeble, etc. So in closing, I thought I would close with Swamiji's um, opening address at the Parliament of World Religions. It's from his completed works. I'll read to you now. Um, Response to Welcome, which is his opening address um, in 1893, 11th of September. Um, it's a very short speech. It's like two few paragraphs only. And as I, you know, speak it, we, we didn't hear the master. We didn't know how Vivekananda spoke. So we must kind of bring to this a touch of pathos and just feel the words at so many years distance. Let's sense that electric shock. Hmm? So he comes up. He does an invocation to Saraswati in his brilliant robe with his turban standing there resplendent. He is the child of Sri Ramakrishna. If he wanted, he could unhinge the stars. He could cast the world into the void if he wanted. He is Shiva himself. And now Shiva is about to speak. Sisters and brothers of